Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? It's Wednesday, and it's What You've Been Playing Wednesday. And this is a special weekly episode where us content creators come together and let you know what we've been playing recently. And on this episode are... Meeple and the Moose. Dice and Dragons. The Meeple Dungeon. Of Dice and Men. Mr. Rao Gaming Rants and Reviews. Board on the Air, the Bridge City Board Gamers Community, and Cardboard Conjecture. And please take the time to check out the show notes for the links to the What You've Been Playing Wednesday cast. And it's that time to sit back and enjoy. Hello. My name is Alex, and I write board game reviews over at MeepleInTheMoose.com, and I'm here to talk about the games I played this week for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. This week, my mind was a little foggy and I didn't feel up to playing anything big or heavy, so I have three smaller but great games to talk about today. The first is Fantasy Realms by Bruce Glasgow and published by WizKids. Fantasy Realms is a drafting game in which you're trying to amass the most points by making a combo in your hand. The game starts with each player with 7 cards, and on your turn you have to pick up a card and you have to discard a card. All the discarded cards are face up on the table, and as soon as there are 10 discarded cards, the game ends. Every card in Fantasy Realms is unique and generally plays off other cards in interesting ways. What makes Fantasy Realms great is that every time you play you can chase a wildly different strategy making it feel fresh each time. In this particular game, I had a leader who added the sum of all armies cards onto him effectively making the army's cards count twice. The challenge then becomes ensuring none of the other cards in my hand would lower the value of those army cards, or worse, blank them, effectively turning them into dead weight. Scoring in Fantasy Realms is a bit of a bear. It generally takes longer to count up your score than it does to play the game. Luckily, there's an app to help with scoring. Fantasy Realms is fast and easy to play, but sometimes it can feel very luck-dependent, With only 10 cards being drawn from the deck before the game ends, there isn't a lot of time or capability to pivot your strategy. I did win this most recent game of Fantasy Realms, but it was only because I drew the exact card I needed, the Shield of Kent, which got a plus 40 point bonus if I also had the Sword of Kent, which I did. Not to mention that the Sword of Kent also got a plus 40 point bonus if I had the Shield of Kent in my hand. My final score was 240. Without the Shield of Kent, I would have ended with 180, which would have put me in second place The next game we played was Karuba by Rudiger Dorn and published by Haba. In Karuba, you're racing adventurers through the jungle, hoping to discover temples and recover gems laying haphazardly across the paths. Karuba is unique in that everyone is given the exact same starting positions. On your personal player board, the adventurers and temples are placed in the same spots along the edge. One player draws a tile randomly, and then everyone finds the same tile to play, meaning you could theoretically play the exact same game as your opponents. But what I find interesting about Karuba is when the paths diverge. When I choose to place a tile in a spot, it's because it's obviously the best spot for that tile. But seeing my opponents play the same tile to a different spot, I either wilt in my own insecurities or scoff at their buffoonery. The last game we played was Skull by Hervé Marley and published by Asmodee. Skull is a bluffing game played with coasters. Each player starts with four circular cards in their hand. Three cards contain a flower, and the last card contains a skull. To start the round, each player places one of their cards on the table, then the first player either places another card down or makes a bid, claiming how many cards they can flip over without finding a skull. Should they make a bid, the next player in order can either raise that bid or pass. One of the keys of the game is that the player who wins the bid must flip over all of their own cards before flipping over any of their opponent's cards. If the challenge succeeds, and they manage to find as many flowers as they claimed that they could, they get a point. Should they find a skull, however, they lose one of the cards forever. The last player standing, or the first player to get two points, is the winner. Skull is a pretty pure distillation of bluffing. Choosing to place a skull on top of your pile, then next round starting a bid is a pretty gutsy move. 
I adore the reveal in Skull. When someone bids they can flip over five cards and there's only six cards on the table, the tension builds dramatically as each flower is flipped, until either they shout with elation or are crushed by finding a hidden skull. I don't like that players get eliminated from this game, and if you happen to lose your skull, then it feels like you've lost your teeth. But considering the short playtime, Skull is a great game that hits my table from time to time, usually at the end of a night. And that's all I played this week. If you want to read my board game reviews, you can find them over at meeplethemoose.com or you can follow me at Moose Meeple. Have a happy Wednesday. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dice and Dragons. And you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram at Dice and Dragons, and on Twitter at Dice and Dragon. And what is it today, Julie? It's what you've been playing Wednesdays. And what have we been playing? Uh, a hero game, I forget. Hour of Need. How could you forget that quickly? In any case, yes. It is by Blacklist Games, the fourth in their modular deck system series of games, designed by Brady and Adam Sadler. It's a one to four player game, expandable up to six players. What you will be doing is using your unique deck of cards to try to play the largest amount of abilities that you can, take, taking only two actions per turn. For those that are familiar with the MDS system, you can exhaust your cards. There's a lot of free actions you can take using cards. So you're really gonna be trying to do a whole lot of stuff and combo these awesome streams of events in order to stop the villains by solving the the schemes and the other problems that are happening on the board and then finally taking them down before they get to the end of their goal through either the villain or the stage itself. Yes, so um, in this case, I would say there's a lot of different things that you can do that it's a little different from the other games that we've played. Uh, I mean, I felt like other games were highly focused on um, other MDS games, more highly focused on combat. In this case, you're, there's a lot more things I feel like you could do. I, I feel like Alter Quest really started the shift away from combat, but it also started bogging down the system a little bit in terms of the activations of the of the, the stages or the uh, the scenarios that you're on, while Hour of Need really focuses on streamlining that experience. So it, it's probably my favorite of the MDS system games in terms of just the system itself. However, in terms of the content in the box, I feel like what we're getting in the core box is not my favorite so far, at least especially not with the characters that we No, have. I mean, I enjoyed, uh, I mean, I know I don't want to give away everything that we're going to talk about in our review coming out tomorrow, but... Uh, I mean, I, I think I, I there's one character that I really enjoyed playing, and the other one feels like she's much more of a support character. She has some lots of good features, but doesn't feel as well-rounded to me. Yeah, I think that uh, the best way to put it is that some characters work really well as kind of the lead, and others work really well as support, and depending on who you put together in a two-player game, it might feel a little bit wanting. But that being said... This is a one to four player game, meaning you're going to find a lot of balance at four, and each character should still play fairly well solo. There are also three expansions that are solo one to two player experiences uh, as well that can be mixed in with this to take it up to a six player game. I think you probably want to try to find those if you can. I wouldn't want to rely just on the core box heroes. Uh, The Kickstarter did okay, we got the game. But it was not as successful as they hoped, and there's a there's definitely some content that is uh, that's missing. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of things that that nick the game a little bit. Although overall, I would say it's it's fun to play, and and we did have I did have fun. I think we had fun playing it. I think it's probably uh, it, it, I don't know. Maybe with the different characters, it's more fun at four. I don't know. I enjoyed it at two. Uh, especially with the first characters that we played. Uh, I think it was fun. It, it is a fun game to play. I really enjoy it when I roll the bursts. I think you said fun like five times there. <laughs> okay, so it's fun. Fun, fun. Fun, fun, fun. <laughs> well, okay, I'll, I'll give you a couple negatives. There's some, you know, print font things that aren't the best in that. I think the villains, they could have used a different typecast and, you know, different layout for it because they're a little hard to read. And there's a couple things I do agree with you in terms of the villain cards that could have been done to pull uh, your attention to certain areas of the card 
when you're playing uh, different aspects of the game. Uh, it does a very good job of being minimalist and using cards for multiple things, but that can become a problem if you're playing a little later on at night or you're tired, like we were on like our we last play. often, yes. Yeah, especially on our last play of uh, the game. But I want to really highlight the art. The art is cool. The way the system works is cool. It's got that superhero feel. It's got that comic book feel. And I, I actually would be interested to actually uh, read a comic book about Majesty or some of the characters. And uh, the character I thought I would least enjoy playing, uh, Gorilla, was a character that I most enjoyed playing. He was incredibly useful in terms of just being able to exhaust uh, enemies so that they don't activate. He does. He did a decent job at solving problems, as well as having some nice cards that could boost his ability to hit card and gain a lot of focus. So. When I contrast that compared to Michael Guy, who has some cool things that he can do, but is more of a support role, that comes down to the flaws that we're talking about in terms of this as just a two-player experience. You're going to want to really round out your box as much as you can. So, I mean, the basically, I think what we're saying is the base box is fun. You'll enjoy it. You'll have fun. Not all characters are created as equal, but you're highly recommending the expansions to really round it out and bring it to the next level. Yeah, the, the system is good. It's a good system. It's a good adaptation of the MDS system, and it's fast. It's quick. When things are going well and you're not making any mistakes, the game will flow in about an hour or two players. So depending on how quick you can play this at four, you're looking at probably a 60 to 90 minute game. And there aren't that many games out there that can really deliver that experience that have the depth of the an MDS system game. So that's something that I really want to compliment it uh, on. And I think it does really well uh, uh, to provide a level of variety. But when it comes to what's in the box, there's only four heroes. So you're going to be missing something. So I think on that note, uh, it's time to remind you, you can catch our review on YouTube coming out after this. So tomorrow... And otherwise, it's time to remind everybody to keep playing games. Hello, everybody. It's Anna Marie and Rob from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And that's all you're going to hear from Rob tonight as he is uh, sick. He doesn't really have a voice. It's a little bit rough. So you have to suffer through listening to me for a little bit. Um, this is my about third time through this because he keeps laughing at me trying to do it on my own. So let's see if I can make it through this uh, without any more redos. Um, today I am going to be talking about Oniram. And that is a game by Shady Torby and designed by by or sorry published by z-man games this is a card game and you can play it one or two players um and i've been playing it a lot solo because rob has been sick so this game is all about uh, you're you're kind of locked in a dream state you're uh you're in this labyrinth of a dream world and you you're trying to get out and the only way to get out is by collecting uh, or by, sorry, unlocking these Oniric doors. There are eight doors. There are two of each color. Each color is a different suit in the deck of cards. So each suit has three different types of cards. You've got key cards, moon cards, and sun cards. And you're basically going to be laying out your cards um, just in a line. So you'll lay one card down. Um, let's to, to unlock the doors, uh, you basically need to put three cards of the same suit, one after another, but they can't, you can never have two of the same type of card side by side. So you could never have two sun cards beside each other or two moon or two key cards together. They just, uh, you can't do it. So if you had, say, a, a blue sun, a blue moon, and then a blue key, you would unlock a blue Oniric door. So once you've got that down, you're laying them down um, in your line uh, on the table. You then look through your draw deck. And once you find the, a blue key in your draw deck, you take it out, you put it on the top, and then you or like a side on the table, and you shuffle your deck. There's a lot of shuffling happening in this game. <laughs> so then... Um, then you're going to go try to get your next door. So you look, um, you start the deck, I should have mentioned, uh, you start the game, you've got five cards in your hand. You're always going to have five. You're going to draw a card or you're going to play a card, draw a card, 
play a card, draw a card. Um, so if the last card you played was a blue key, you can't play any key of any other color. So you'd have to start it with either a sun or a moon of a different color. So nightmares come into play a lot into this game. You have 10 nightmare cards. This whole deck is 76 cards. So you've got 10 nightmares in there and they're just basically coming to, um, to thwart you. <laughs> so um, to get past the nightmares, there are three different ways you can get past them. If you happen to have a key card in your hand, you can play the key card. It basically wipes the, the nightmare away. It just goes away. Then you draw back up to your five cards. Um, you could also, instead of using a key card, if you didn't have one, you could just discard your entire hand. You put it in your discard pile and then you just draw up to five new cards. Or you could just, if you really wanted the cards that you had in your hand, you didn't, you didn't want to discard them, you could just discard five off the top right away and they go, you reveal them and you put them on your discard pile. The nice thing with this game is your discard pile is available to look at whenever you want. So it's not hidden. You can search through it to see, okay, how many key cards of this color have I used? How many moons of this color have I used? So you can kind of get a strategy of just to, to kind of know where you've been if you if you can't remember it all the way, which I can't. <laughs> but so you're going to basically go through this trying to get two, uh, two doors of each color without um, running out of cards in the deck. So if you can't draw any more cards or if you uh, if you can't draw up to five in your hand, you've run out of cards in your draw deck, you lose. Um, and so if you or if there's no way that you can get your your doors anymore like you've used up all of your say red cards and you still are missing a red door there's no way you're gonna get it you lose and you just have to do it again um, every time you have a nightmare card come out and you use uh, from you and you take it out of the deck you have to shuffle so almost after every turn there's gonna be a lot of shuffling in there um, but that's basically uh, the game of Onirem and it's it is a ton of fun it's one of those games where after you finish playing, you just want to play it again and you want to play it again and you want to play it again. And if you lose, you want to play it again and again and again until you win. Uh, this game has a fantastic app uh, made for it and that makes it really easy to play um, to play solo because you can just sit on your phone, you play it, it's very smooth, it's got a kind of little... Um, I guess nightmarish or uh, no, it's not really nightmarish, but this little uh, tune that it plays in the background and it's just kind of a little soft kind of dark, dark little tune, but it's uh, it's awesome. You can play it over and over again. It keeps your stats on there so you can see, you know, your win percentage kind of makes you want to play again and again and again to, to up that. So it's clever that way. But this is an absolutely fantastic game. It's great as a solo game. It's great as the, a two-player co-op game. Um, Rob and I both love it. Our kids both love it. It was absolutely fantastic to distract them a little bit while the other one was at, you know, at a, at a hockey practice or something like that where they were kind of bored. They'll be like, oh, can I play Onirum on your phone? Sure, here you go. Because why not? You're playing a game and uh, it's a fantastic game. I would want to play it too. So that is Oniram from Z-Man Games, and it is fantastic. I highly recommend you go check it out. Um, we would have had, Rob and I would have had our uh, a, a new podcast episode out this week, uh, except that he is sick, so we haven't been able to. So uh, listening to me for, you know, an hour might not be that pleasant. <laughs> so hopefully as soon as he gets feeling better, we'll get uh, get one out. It will be on the Disney Battle Arena, the new one out there. So we're, we've been playing it. We're really enjoying it. And we'll let you know more about that um, on our next one. So that is all I have for this episode. And we will see you later. Hey there, Chad here from Of Dice and Men, the podcast where we talk about board games, the people who play them, and the culture surrounding the hobby. What I've been playing the past few Wednesdays is a game that I've eagerly anticipated for a long time and finally got a chance to table, Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor. 
Uprising, published by Nemesis Games, is a recently fulfilled Kickstarter that also just finished its expansion campaign on GameFound. The reason why the game caught my eye, it's a 4x cooperative board game where players work together to beat two non-player factions through the 4x staples, exploration, base building, combat, and questing. From a theme perspective, Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor has each player controlling a band of survivors trying to organize a rebellion on one of the last islands on the planet that has been untouched by the curse. You find yourself stuck between a rock and a hard place. The last empire on Earth is a desperate group of aggressive nobles trying to keep their empire's power, whereas the curse, a group of tainted undead, are encroaching on the island in a bid to dominate the planet. Each player's faction is an independent team trying to simply survive and not be swallowed by either NPC faction, represented by your shared victory condition. At the end of the game, every player has to have more victory points than either of the NPC opponents. Forex games are nothing new in the board game space, but the fact that this is a cooperative game really sets Uprising apart. I generally don't go for dudes on a map games, with a few rare exceptions, but moving all that competitive strategy from a player versus player perspective to a players versus the board perspective really turns things around for me. It's no longer a case of who's the better strategist or who's got luckier dice rolls, but rather a collaborative experience where everyone puts their heads together to figure out the best way to tackle the situation on the board. This is a good thing, as Uprising can be quite the brain burner. While in some cases, simply putting a military force together and rolling dice through the countryside is a valid strategy, more often than not, players will have to work together to figure out the best way to shepherd the villains towards each other on the map, gather items, and complete quests that will leave them in an advantageous position throughout each of the game's four chapters, and protect their havens, bases built by each faction that allow them to spawn more units and collect vital victory points. The game's main strategy focuses around victory point management, both in how much the players can generate, but just as much through preventing the NPC factions from gaining ground. This is primarily done through managing each NPC's faction's hordes and legions, the superunits that troll the countryside towards their targets. Left unchecked, a group of units can gain opponents upwards of 10 or more victory points per chapter, but when faced head-on, the hordes and legions become formidable foes that require carefully crafted skills and items to defeat. A better strategy is to manipulate the units into fighting each other and moving towards less valuable regions on the board, which can be done through quests, exploration, and other player powers. In that way, Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor reminds me of other dudes on map games that feature automated opponents. I enjoy Uprising the same way I enjoy playing Root with the Clockwork Factions or Dawn of Peacemakers. As a player, you're given enough information to know what your automated opponents are about to do, and a few actions to try to influence or otherwise take advantage of that information. Each round is like an elaborate puzzle where you do the best you can with what you have at your disposal, and then spend some time evaluating the progression until the next action phase. And just like Root and other games in that vein, Uprising is very much an ecosystem that you play within, which is a style of game that I've seen people bounce off of. Each round will consist of a bunch of movement and actions outside of your control, eventually coming back around to your turn, where you need to try to make sense of the 20 or so other things that happened. Each chapter in the game consists of 19 steps, during which you can only make decisions in three of them. That's a lot of bookkeeping, and understandably more than a lot of players may be comfortable with. Fortunately, the player action phase is the longest phase, and having each player interleave their actions instead of one action playing a complete turn like in Root helps alleviate some of the downtime. All that said, Uprising is still a 4x dudes on a map game. There's a handful of dice that might not go your way, there's a large 50 plus page rulebook full of conditions and exceptions that will take you a few plays to understand, and the game will take hours to play. As I said earlier, I generally don't go for this style of game, but the switch from a competitive my strategy is better than yours to a collaborative let's work out a strategy together really shifts the gameplay for me to a more enjoyable format. There's been enough difference in the handful of games I've played that it doesn't feel as though there's one catch-all strategy to employ, and the large amount of content and variable setup gives the game enough tactical variation that each play will feel different. Also, a quick shout out to the game's production. From what I can tell, this is Nemesis Games' first foray into the publishing space, and they've done a spectacular job. The Coilbound rulebook has everything in the right place. Anytime I needed to double-check a rule, it was exactly where I expected it to be. The plastic full art standees are distinct colorblind-friendly colors. The cardstock is so good you almost feel bad using it. The artwork is fantastic, and the world-building feels like the game was crafted from a legendary existing IP. You're definitely getting your money's worth with this game. There is also an expansion produced with the game's first printing, the Arch Nemesis expansion. 
This expansion adds four new player factions with even more varied power and strategy, as well as a new fourth chapter concept, the Arch Nemesis. The Arch Nemesis reveal occurs during the fourth chapter, replacing the enemy spawn with a stronger thematic awakening of one of four different endgame bosses, which provides even more challenge to veteran players and a nice thematic climax to the game. Overall, I'm glad I managed to snag a copy of this crowdfunding exclusive, and if you're not a fan of solo or cooperative games like Roots, Clockwork Expansions, or Dawn of Peacemakers, where the players work together to overcome automated opponents, this game probably isn't for you. Uprising Curse of the Last Emperor just wrapped up a recent campaign on GameFound for a new expansion, and with any luck you might be able to jump on a late pledge to get a copy of the game. As for us, we've recently wrapped up a recording of our latest podcast episode where we discuss shepherding others through the board game hobby. You can check out that episode in our last few years of timeless back catalog by searching for Of Dice and Men wherever podcasts can be found. Have a great week! Hey folks, Ryan here from Mr. Rouse Gaming Rants and Reviews, and welcome to another week of What You've Been Playing Wednesday, where this week I'll be chatting about a little game called Key to the Kingdom, designed by Matthew O'Malley and Ben Rosette, published in 2022 by Restoration Games, and illustrated by Andrew Bosley. Since the late 80s, sometime around 1987, the Demon King has wreaked havoc upon the land. The downtrodden people cry out for a worthy hero to set upon a mighty quest to fashion a magical key that will grant them control over the kingdom's mysterious whirlpools, then to defeat the Demon King once and for all. The kingdom cheers each time a brave hero rises to face this endless gauntlet of dangers and then promptly runs away to sunny Florida. There's no one left to answer the call, unless maybe you are up for it. No pressure. Key to the Kingdom is pure family fun inside of a box. And how I like to describe this one is what uh, kind of like what my wife was going at is that this is a roll and move game that doesn't suck. Yes, all you're doing on your turns is that you are selecting one of the five available characters. You know, there's a pixie and a unicorn and a gnome and then a kind of like a, you know, kind of a wimpy knight. And um, then, then like some really like badass woman that's really just ready to, uh, ready to come out here and slay. Um, and all of them do a little bit something different. But really all you're doing on your turn is you're rolling one eight-sided die and then you're moving. Simple. Roll a five, you have to move five spaces. Oh, but I forgot to mention that you have a whole treasure trove of items that you're carrying with you all the time. And these items will allow you to modify your dice rolls. You have two plus or minus one items, two plus or minus two items, two plus or minus three items, and two plus or minus four items. So you really have a lot of flexibility. After you've rolled your dice, you have a real strong flexibility to kind of land on whatever space you want going forward on this game. And your board is made up of these two halves that kind of slide together like a puzzle, and they also fold because there's some spaces on there that are, that are these magical whirlpools that open up the board to a bigger possibilities. Really kind of cool. And there's really only three different types of spaces that you can land on. Blank spaces that are really boring, and actually they call them boring spaces in the game. That's actually kind of cool. Um, then there are refresh spaces where you, after you've used some of your items to you know do some extra moves or stuff like that or help you along in quests, um, you can refresh them. Um, there are event spaces where if you land on them, you get to draw a card from a really pretty sizable stack of event cards that are full of events and companions to gain along the way and whatnot. And then there's the demon die space, which kind of curses another player at the table. That's actually kind of cool because the demon die kind of has this really wide range of say it's still an eight sided die, but it ranges from zero all the way up to 11 and kind of like a random mixture of values in between. It's actually kind of neat to get the demon die and then just also try to land on another demon. So it's, it's kind of just rotating around the table. That's, it's actually kind of chaotic and it's kind of fun. Anywho. What are you actually trying to do as you're moving around this board is, well, eventually you're going to run into these adventure 
spaces. And some adventure spaces will grant you, if you complete it, will grant you key pieces. And that's key to this game. Key to the kingdom. You want to grab all three pieces of the key. There's a red piece, there's a blue piece, and there's a green piece. And they all kind of fit nicely together to make a key so that you can eventually make your way to the Demon King's lair. Now, these adventures are actually really quite unique all around the board. They have a whole range of different ways that you have to be able to complete it. And they all based around your dice rolls. Like, there's one adventure where you have to only roll ones. That's extremely hard to do, so come equipped with a lot of different items. Or there's another quest where I think you have to roll always greater than nine, which is kind of hard to do when you have an eight-sided die. I'm just throwing that one out there. Um, and then there's a whole bunch of different quests that are, um, like there's another one where you have to, um, always have to increase your die roll from the previous one. So if you roll a start off with the three, then you have to get a four above. And then if you roll a six, well, now it's six and above and then so forth and so forth. So you want to complete these adventures and they may seem pretty daunting and difficult at first, but you know what? They're not actually that bad. More often than not, we've successfully completed our adventures on either the first or at least second try. Now, there are ways to actually make your adventures actually easier because all adventures will always have, hey, if you have this one item still available and it's not been exhausted, you just get to move to that space for free without actually having to roll the die. And every adventure always has, it's like um, helpful companions. If you've discovered some of these companions in that event deck, well, if you have that companion, you get to kind of move up on that track or those adventures just without having to roll the die on for a couple spaces. So that's kind of a, a key piece to go with that at the very beginning of the game, you're kind of want to, you want to find these event spaces because grabbing some companions will actually be very, very helpful. Not only on these adventures, but also every companion also gives you some sort of game-bending rule. Like every time you roll an eight, you can actually set it to whatever value you want. Or if you roll a even number, something happens, something like that. Or, hey, every time that you land in an event space, you get to refresh one of your items. They all, and they have a whole wide range of wacky abilities. Okay. So let's get it. You grab, you went on your adventures. You've managed to grab all three pieces of the key. You get to a whirlpool spot. And now you get to go to the battle, the demon's lair. And the demon's lair is actually really quite interesting as it just kind of has three stages to it. There's like, there's always two, there's two tokens you have to choose from. And whatever values on the backside of that token, that's the role you have to beat. And then, then there's three tokens you have to choose from, and you have, you have to beat that role as well. And then there's four tokens to choose from, and then you have to beat that role. And then finally, the ultimate test in the demon layer is that you have to roll a 20 or above, and you're allowed to use all of the items that you have not exhausted. So essentially, it comes down to a mathematical game of, hey, I've got all these items. I'm going to try not to exhaust all my large values so that I can try to get that 20 and above. Everything I described may seem like this game takes forever to do because it's a lot of chances, a lot of die rolling. But those items really, you know, they, they, they mitigate the luck. So, yeah, a, a game actually only takes about mm, half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe. It, it's not a significant time frame. And really, your, your turns are actually really quite short. Roll a die, move to a space. You may want to think about which space you want to land on, but that's about it. Now, the game comes with an adventuring atlas, which I believe is kind of like the weakest part of the box. Um, it really makes you feel like there's a kind of like a story going on in the, in the depths behind you. And the adventuring atlas just kind of clarifies what you have to do on each of the adventuring spaces. Um, some of them are really, really straightforward. Some of them require a little bit of explanation, but after you've played it a few times you don't really need to refer to the Adventuring Atlas anymore. Like, and, and plus, the Adventuring Atlas doesn't have any story um, really associated. Maybe a, a couple one-liner or two lines of kind of flavor text of what's going on, but that's about it. So as an quote-unquote adventure game, it's pretty weak. As a roll-and-move game trying to race towards the end, that's where this game really shines because I don't think... this They, they made this game for 
parents that play with really young kids because I have a blast playing this game every single time with my kids and they don't actually realize that they're doing math. And I love that. You know, it's basic adding and subtracting, but they're doing math and I'm really, really excited about that. Um, the components are all fantastic in this game. Um, I highly recommend picking up or checking out Key to the Kingdom if you have a family and you have, you know, your kids are kind of around that, like my son is six years old. If you have them around that five to probably about eight or nine range, you're going to probably really enjoy this game. As soon as they start getting a little bit older, though, this game is not going to really see a lot of gameplay. I'm going to, I'm, I'm foreseeing. So as long as if you have kids and you have a family in that range, yeah, I would definitely try to check this one out. It is a ton of fun. And that's what I've been playing lately, Key to the Kingdom. Be sure to check out my full overview, thoughts, and review of Key to the Kingdom over on my YouTube channel. Search up Mista Rouse Gaming Rants and Reviews. And if you also like to follow my gaming adventures on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, just search up at Mr. Rao Gaming. All right, enjoy the rest of what you've been playing Wednesday, folks. <laughs> Hi, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we are Board on the Air, a weekly radio show in Saskatoon. And you can find us on all your favorite podcasting sites under Board on the Air. And this is What Have You Been Playing? Jordan, what have we been playing? So the game we've been playing is Champions of Hara, which is a one to four player game of collecting power and getting up tracks. Yeah, it's got a little bit of deck building to it. Uh, it's got some track movement. It has some exploration. Yep, monster fighting. Uh, teaming up on people. Yeah. it's So the, the goal of the game is to get three tracks to the max. And it's red, green, and blue. Uh, and they're different types of energy. Yeah. That's... How they say it, it's just blue, red, or green energy. They don't have specific names for it. Yeah, and he, you have a character who's asymmetric, and they have hit points and health, or hit, hit points, points and, and spirit. Spirit. So the goal of the game is you're running around the board, fighting monsters, and doing events to get en get this energy. But how you're doing all your stuff is you're playing cards. In a little bit of a similar way to uh, Gloomhaven. Yep. Where you... A little different, but you can play a card, you take the top action from the in hand, then you can play three cards on your turn. If you have any cards on the board, your next turn you can do the return to hand action on them. Well, the first, first round you're playing three down. After that, it's a combination of down or up. Yeah. And each card has a power if you're playing in front of you or if you're bringing it back into your hand. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you're going through six different realms? Yes, six different realms. There's six possible heroes you can play as. And there's there's a campaign version of it, but we've mostly just played the one-offs. Yeah, and you don't have to play the campaign. If you want to play, get like be really specific, you can. But you can also just pull the stuff the campaign gives you out because you can see it right off the bat. Yeah, it's... There's no surprises in the game. It shows you exactly what you're going to get. And as you read the campaigns, it says do this and you get this, basically. Yeah. Well, the campaigns are basically... You play one normal one where you're all trying to get the, the 10 energies of each. Then whoever wins gets to pick one of their scenarios. And then you do that scenario and they unlock something for their hero. Okay. And then whoever wins the next game does the same thing. Yeah. Okay. And you basically just keep doing that until everyone's done all their... Gets all their bonuses out. Yeah, this, this game takes roughly 90 minutes to two hours, I would say. It says 30 minutes per player, so... Yeah, and we've we've played it at four, four and four, four and, and four. four. <laughs> yeah, we've never played less than four, and you've never played the solo, correct? I've played the solo. Oh, you have. Okay. Uh, how does the solo play in comparison to the four player? The solo is a lot more of a puzzle opposed to the four player, where... You are puzzling with a four-player, but you're also like, okay, if I do this, I can do da-da-da-da-da. And then suddenly someone comes over and drags you off somewhere. 
Yes. Yeah, so your your game is split up into six rounds, although we've never made six rounds and or six days. Six days. Uh, and there's a dusk and or dawn and a dusk and at dawn you get new cards from each of the realms and at dusk you get new cards from the dusk's pile. Yeah, and then at the end of dusk you get a world shifting. Yeah. And the dojo, which is the center board where you have to get back to to win. Well, the initially start of the center board. Yeah, initially start. It moves with one of the regions. So yeah, so the boards are constantly going to be swapping all over the place, messing up with your plans. Yeah. Uh, movement is a little bit tight in this game. Uh, no character would I say has a lot of movement. There's ways to get more movement, I feel like. Like, last time we played one of the characters definitely has more movement than some of the others but it, it's tight yeah it's yeah. not something where you're like oh i want to get to the other side of the board <laughs> yeah and, and the monsters are going to have anywhere from three to six hit points for the most part yeah and one or two range they very rarely have longer yeah. than two range yeah so you'll attack uh and they can counter attack if they're still alive they don't count attack if they're still alive, only at the end of your turn. So you yeah. could attack and run away if you don't kill it. <laughs> For sure. Uh, all in all, it, I've played this three or four times now. Uh, always have had a decent time. One time we did play it and it went a little bit long. Just the, the person we were playing with was struggling with uh, a little bit of analysis on this one. Uh, but for the most part, your turns aren't that long, so you stay involved. No. And you're always like, okay, so I have these four actions I can pick from. How do I make them work the best? Yeah, and you're invested in what everybody else is doing. Uh, so you're not sitting there planning your turn while other people are going and you look up and you're like, oh, what happened? I didn't, didn't really care. Yeah. Right? And there is player versus player in it, but it's not the main draw. And even if everyone teams up to murder somebody, it doesn't hurt them that bad. Yeah, you're not losing everything when you Die. get knocked out, we'll say. Uh, solid game. Uh, I would. This is one that you own, mm -hmm. and we've played uh, fairly fairly uh, often with us. Yeah, I would say pretty often, more, more so than some of my games. For sure. Okay, that is Champions of Hara. We are bored in the air, and this is, has been... What have you been playing? I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we will see you on, or talk to you on next week's segment. Hey there, Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And it's time to go to the Facebook thread to see what the community has been playing. So... What you've been playing Wednesday, Bridge City Board Gamers community. Let's start off with Jason. Uh, I'm going to see this one probably a lot. Ark Nova. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is, uh, the, that's the new hotness uh, from Capstone. And uh, it's been trending for a while. And I can't wait to have the opportunity to give that a try because, you know, <laughs> I want to hear what everyone's talking about. Um, uh, so, Jeff. Um, and also, let's just mention, too, that I believe... On uh, on uh, the, the May long weekend, JeffCon. I feel so bad that I wasn't able to make it. I have hope it was a great success, and I think it was uh, because we're going to see a lot of games being played. And uh, well, let's start off by saying uh, Jeff played Ark Nova, eighteen eighty two, uh, Anarchy. But I <laughs> see, hey, they're alphabetized. Uh, Barrage, Brass, Birmingham, Cascadia, Hallertau, On Mars, Pax Renaissance, Project L, Space Base, uh, Veggies, Watergate. That is a list and a half. And the only one that was played twice was Ark Nova. And uh, so, yeah, that sounds like right there, it sounds like there was a solid um, uh, lineup at Jeff Con. I'm going to say it again Jeff Con. Um, uh, Eli. Continued sinister motives in Marvel Champions and unmatched and quacks and Quedlinburg. I have to properly articulate that one. Um, uh, yeah, Marvel Champions love the deck building. Um, unmatched. That uh, <laughs> that is such a fun head to head, um, and you could pretty much it could be like Sasquatch versus uh, I, you know Bruce Lee. <laughs> so uh, it's it's so fun. It's so fun. Uh, Quacks of Quidlinburg, a very popular 
a bag building push your uh, push your luck kind of thing. Uh, let's move on. Steve, Wonderland Wars. You know, I don't think I've ever heard of that one. I'm going to have to put that on my homework list to look it up. Uh, Hans uh, played Anachrony, Barrage, Arc Nova, Terraforming Mars, Space Base, Bitoku. Uh, I, th- I, th- I think that is a participant of Jeff Kahn. <laughs> Puts a big reverb on that. Um, Anachrony. I've yet to play that one. Everybody says it is uh, such a really cool worker placement game that uh, incorporates this whole, you know, future timeline jumping. So, yeah, I'm in. I love that kind of uh, sci-fi stuff. Uh, Louis, Corinth, Terraforming Mars, Ares Expedition, Cartographers, Cascadia, Cantaloupe, Furnace. And it says, I think this is all this week. Yeah, it was a good week. Uh, and he says, have a great week, everybody. Well, fantastic. Thank you. Um, Corinth is, uh, I think that's the dice rolling game by Days of Wonder. And uh, yeah, it's pretty cool. Terraforming Mars Ares Expedition. I want to try that one. That is, uh, I, I get this uh, Puerto Rico kind of feel from it where one person takes one thing and everybody else gets to have a secondary action. But I could be wrong. You know, there we go. Uh, cartographers love it. Roll uh, Flip and write kind of game. Uh, Cascadia, yeah, if, if that was one of my favorites from last year. Uh, cool, that's a great lineup. Lane, Lane always has a good variety because there's everything from games for him and games for his kids. So let's look at, what, I'm looking at the list and I'm laughing already. <laughs> X-Men United, Scythe, Near and Far, Gloomhaven, Pass the Pigs. <laughs> Um, I can't comment on the last one, but uh, all the other ones, great games, great games. Uh, Jeff was talking about uh, getting Scythe to the table at Gamer's Garage one of these days. Uh, so yeah, right on. That's a good list. Travis, Railroad Tycoon, old version of Railways of the World. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, Ola and Scategories, uh, Edit, uh, Scategories Edit and Cribbage. I think is how it goes. Uh, cribbage. Uh, I've been playing lots of cribbage on Board Game Arena, and uh, it's it's wash memories, washing back of of university days, and all the way back to me remembering how to play cribbage when I was in grade five. So, yay! See, just it's all about community. Tim, Warhammer Underworlds. That looks cool. There's a picture that he's posted here of of the game board and uh yeah yeah interesting cards board minis like it <laughs> that's all i can say about it uh not a, i'm not in depth into the warhammer genre or world and uh so let's move on brian juicy fruits house of danger oh i've always tried to uh check out that choose your own adventure game and gloomhaven well gloomhaven's kind of choose your own demise the way i play it because um, uh, it's, oh, I'm always like one last card away and uh, Juicy Fruit it's one of those good family games from what I understand so yay Matt, Robin, Matt Robertson I stumbled over my words there my apologies a solid list and uh, many first plays thanks to Jeff Kahn as he says here so let's look at his list Project L three times uh, Arc Nova Brass Birmingham Cascadia 8 Minute Empire Great Western Trail Point Salad Wow. Wow. That was, if that was your list of plays, that was a very, very good gaming weekend. So nice. Well done, Jeff Kahn. Uh, <laughs> moving on, Chris. We just bought Return to Dark Tower and are loving it. Yeah. All that nostalgia. Ja. I said it with the, with a, you know, push G. Um, uh, so yeah, I remember that playing when I was when I'm not gonna you know show my age, but <clears throat> teens and uh, yeah, but there's the beeps and bops are gonna be a little bit I hope are a little bit different this time with with uh, Return to Dark Tower. Um, John rounding out this list is John National Pro Hockey of course uh, Irish Gage yeah Capstone has such a great. Uh, edition of this one with uh with the uh, you know tool artwork uh express and railways of the world i see a little bit of train theme um right on the and and uh, of course national pro hockey 
Uh, I remember John came onto the show and uh, was chit-chatting about uh, the league they got going on and the fact that I think they have the only North American copy of this game. So, wonderful. Well, that's, that's a great lineup of games from the Bridge City Board Gamers community. Well, I'm going to quickly touch base on a few games that I had the opportunity to play this week. And, uh, and also, uh, they're going to be on the next review. Um, and this will be the first time that I review four games, but they'll be short, uh, sweet, concise reviews because these are short and sweet card games. And the first one is Canvas, designed by Jeff Chin and Andrew uh, Nerge, and it's published by Road to Inf- uh, Infamy Games. And uh, the thing with Canvas, it's a, it's a set collecting game, kind of recipe building game. And, uh, but the clever thing with Canvas is you use those see-through acetate cards that were, that were made popular by Mystic Veil. And uh, so how, how it works is you're a painter and you are creating three uh, um, paintings for competition to, to get voted on on four different criteria. And uh, how it works is you have this market, uh, and just like your typical market, you have your your sort your source deck, and then the market proceeds from that deck. And and uh, the further away from the deck, the less expensive they are because it's not really a, a, a cost. But you have these these tokens, which are the paint palettes, and uh, the first slot to the far farthest left is always free. And then if you want to uh, select something up, you know put, you know go uh, towards the the uh, the deck box, you have to drop one of these little paint palette tokens um, to uh, you know as far as a, as a uh, economic kind of thing goes in order to get up to the card that you want. If not, then you know, like I said, the first one's the first one doesn't cost anything. Um, so how it works is you're gonna get uh, these acetates, and on the bottom of these acetates, there's five categories with four. There's five sl- color slots. And there's four resources in the game and, uh, and, and an awards thing. And what you're trying to do is the resources that are going to uh, hue, saturation, tone, kind of things like that, which are symbols, um, are going to uh, be randomly dispersed on these, on these cards, these acetates that are in the market. And uh, here's the cool thing about it. Um, you, when you put them together, obviously you see through them, they overlay and on the bottom where these five swatches are going left to right, uh, representing the set collecting part, you're going to uh, uh, either cover up or reveal certain ones to match the, uh, the competition awards that are uh, um, randomly distributed on the board. And there's so many other ones, so there's a lot of variability. Um, and without getting into a deep review of this game, <laughs> that'll come soon enough, this game is... Uh, straightforward. There's two rules. You either uh, make a painting with uh, three of these acetates only, right, minimum, um, or you pick a card from the market. That's it. One or the other. But the decision space is so complicated, not complicated, so rife with decisions because the how do you do it? What are you doing here? I'm going to look. You, you can't, <laughs> as far as accomplishing all of the awards, if you you can't get them all, you have to focus on which ones are the more beneficial because how it works is at the end of the game that after everybody has made those three paintings, you go back to these four categories and depending on the amount of ribbons you have, that's where you get your points. And so just like any other kind of set collecting game, if you have one ribbon, you get four points. If you have two ribbons, you get seven points. If you have three ribbons, you get nine. You know, that kind of like uh, a, a gradient scoring. And uh, so, yeah, what I think um, part of my brain was like, oh, it's just, you know, wants to dismiss it because it's a simple set collecting game. But the decisions are so uh, 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 like difficult. I mean, just describing the difficulty in AP and the decisions is causing me AP. (laughs) So um, I've played this solo a lot. I've played this three player and I played this kind of four player and um it uh at every level of play there's just that still that same amount of decision tension trying to um 
be as efficient as you can in, in, in scoring the cards and arranging them in the manner that you have to the point where you're finally going, well, that's it. That's the best I can do with what I have here. And uh, um, I mean, without getting into the thematic cross, that, it's hilarious how it might work. So that is Canvas. Uh, I'm going to quickly not get into crazy depth, but uh, talk about these next three. Uh, and they're all card games. I think that that's going to be the theme of this this review um, uh, episode. Uh, the next one is Cockroach Poker. And uh, Cockroach Poker is a game about bluffing. And it's not necessarily a game that you win because there is no winner. There is a uh, identified loser of the game because how it works is if you get, uh, if people call your bluff enough and you collect four of the same set, um, you lose. And how it is is there's uh, eight, Eight different insects, and in all of these eight different insects, there are eight uh, of each, right? Spiders, cockroaches, stink bugs. And uh, how it works is basically whoever's turn it is, you take a card, put it down, you, you hide it, and you pick anybody in the table, and you basically tell them, this is a scorpion. And they either call you on it, or they accept it, look at it, and try to pass the bluff to the next person. And whoever goes head-to-head in calling the bluff, Right? If you lose, you take that card, you put it in your tableau, and like I said, it's a set collecting game that you don't want to collect because there is a trigger point, like I said, whoever collects, I think it's four uh, or four or five of the same, boop, game over, you lose, start again. Um, what I love about this game, and being a, a um, high school teacher that's taught psychology and I've with a, with a degree background in it, um, uh, I love observing people's behavior changing when, uh, you know, it's that whole poker tells, right? You just, you're staring, you're, you're analyzing, you're scanning these people like a computer trying to find tells. And uh, it's, there's so much giggling and so much riotous laughter that this game always works. Uh, so yeah, that is Cockroach Poker. The next one is Anomia. And uh, that one is based on the, eye, the tip of the tongue problem or the, the um, if I was to say, you know, in three seconds, tell me your favorite ice cream, you know, ice cream flavor. You might go, uh, and you lock up on a simple answer. The moment you put pressure on someone, um, uh, you know, delivering an answer or going to find the recall to find the answer, that's when, cognitively speaking, that's when there's a malfunction at the junction. So how this game works is there's cards that you uh, uh, flip, uh, flip over around the table in front of each person. And then the mo- and there's symbols on these cards. There's two symbols. The moment that one of these symbols matches, there's going to be a, uh, a topic on the card. And I'll, I'll just, as an example, I'll just kind of flip one over here. And uh, so there's, on the card, there are uh, words and there are symbols. So you flip the cards over, and the moment that a symbol matches, whatever card has uh, triggered that match, like this one is scientific instrument. Well, it's a showdown of the two people. Whoever can name a scientific instrument the fastest will get that point. And, uh, and that's the problem. The moment that you put stress or anxiety in a decision-making space, recall shuts down. And it is the funniest thing to watch. Um, both of these games, uh, when I used to teach psychology, uh, I would use these games to demonstrate um, from a psychology point of view how these systems function and how it's, uh, it's I mean, there's just such great observational psychology going on there. So uh, yeah, that's Cockroach Poacher. Cockroach Poker. <laughs> um, the last one is, uh, again, another card game, and that's Point Salad. And uh, Point Salad is probably the most gratifying set collecting game that one can play because it is, first of all, a, a tongue in cheek at the, the, the idea of, you know, the Feldian Point Salad games where you get points for doing everything. And uh, so what you're doing is you're creating a salad where the, you have different rules. Um, it could be uh, have the most carrots and you get this many points or have a, the, you know, a carrot, a eggplant and, and uh, uh, something else are worth this many points. Or you have uh, red peppers and onions uh, score you points, but if you have carrots, you get minus points. So you have these variable rules that can either turn on or turn off during your game, uh, depending on if you collect them or not. 
and you collect the the the, the vegetables to create this point salad and uh yeah, I'm going to come back to the idea that this is the most gratifying set collecting game that I've played uh, in a long time because, uh, one, it, uh, you, you get to just do this quickly uh, because the games are so fast. And, I mean, in, in, a, in a good little run, you could probably pay, play three or four back-to-back -back games, you know, three or four players, and have a, a wonderful time, right? This is such a gratifying game. Uh, so there you go. Those are four quick card games and uh, like i said these are coming up for review and we're at that point of the show where thank you so much for listening and as always thank you so much to the content creators for uh doing what you do and making this episode happen so uh thank you so much and that being said keep your stick on the ice and take care out there eh? <laughs>